This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 6th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. The Vaccine Advisory Panel to the FDA met on the 6th to discuss how to think about COVID vaccines going forward. Since Eric was going to be tied up all day at that meeting, we recorded this beforehand, but I'd like to talk about some of the data behind the themes that the panel planned to discuss. Let's start off with a study we published yesterday that was also presented at the FDA meeting. It's the second study of a fourth dose of vaccine that we've seen recently. Israel has led the world in providing a third dose of vaccine to the general public and recently started giving a fourth dose to those over 60 years old. In this study, investigators looked at the outcomes associated with that additional dose. So how did the study work? As you said, Steve, we've published quite a bit on the Israeli experience with vaccines during the COVID outbreak. That's largely because the country instituted widespread vaccination very early and added additional booster doses, as you described. It also has an excellent health record system. So the country is in an ideal position to perform real world studies. This study used Israeli Ministry of Health data, which contains information on almost everyone in the country and is a database that's been used in many prior studies. Here, they took advantage of the fact that, as you said, Israeli authorities had approved the use of a fourth dose in specific populations starting at the beginning of the year. This included people over 60, those with risk factors that made them more susceptible to severe disease, and healthcare workers. Individuals were eligible for boosting beginning four months after their third dose. The researchers extracted information at the beginning of March and looked for those who had a positive test for COVID-19, either a PCR or an antigen test, and collected their vaccination history, demographics, and markers of severity of infection. The period covered was almost entirely during the Omicron wave, though there wasn't further testing contained in the database. Still, I think it's reasonable to make the assumption that pretty much everything we see were Omicron infections. They looked at two time periods beginning on January 10th, one extending to March 2nd for infection and to February 18th for severe illness. They compared the rate of disease among those with four doses with two controls, those eligible for a fourth dose who had not yet received it, and those who received a fourth dose but were within a week of receipt, a period in which there might be little benefit. Importantly, they excluded those who'd been previously infected. And what did they find? They included more than 1.2 million people in their study. The analysis is complex, but basically, a fourth dose of vaccine reduced the incidence of confirmed infection by half for the first four weeks. But that fell to about the same rate as the three-dose group following four weeks. The rate of severe illness was also diminished in the four-dose group as compared to the three-dose group at four weeks, a difference that seemed to persist at least until the sixth week after vaccination, but that's the last time point that was examined. It does seem that a fourth dose of vaccine was able to protect against infection, but the benefit was very limited and short-lived. There was likely additional protection against severe infection. However, it's important to remember that the absolute number of severe infection cases was small meaning that any estimate of benefit is imprecise. Of course, three doses does provide good protection against severe disease. So at best, we're likely to see a small increment in absolute benefit. So Steve and Eric, I think that these data remind us the value of our global connectivity and how much we have learned from each other around the world in different experiences in responding to COVID and in understanding which treatments work. The data from South Africa, from Qatar, and as well, these data yet again from Israel, 
provide important insights as we try to understand the best response to understanding the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2 and our response. As you point out, Eric, this is a very short time period. The Israeli investigators looked at data from four to six weeks post-vaccination or second boost vaccination so that we still don't understand what the implications are for longer term protection and immunity. However, we still learn a lot of very interesting insights. There is a substantial reduction in breakthrough infection and severe illness with a fourth dose compared to a third dose. However, as you point out, Eric, and I think this is very important for our community to think carefully about, the absolute value is very small. The benefits are one to two per 100,000 person days. So though it may be statistically significant, the absolute benefit is quite small and needs to be looked at very carefully, especially in light of the importance of first vaccinations for all those who have not yet received that benefit, which is clearly substantial. There are also suggestions in these data of perhaps a dose response, or that's not quite the right way to look at it. In the control group or the comparator group, that is within a week of the fourth dose of vaccination, there is a decrease in breakthrough compared to the three-dose group. The benefit was not as substantial as more than one week post-fourth dose, suggesting perhaps there's an anamnestic response that is playing an important role that is very difficult to quantify, but likely has a substantial role in protection against severe illness. So there is much biology suggested by these data, although difficult to get precise understanding. Lindsay, that's a, an interesting consideration of the benefit side of the equation. The other side, of course, is risk. It doesn't appear from these data that there's a substantially increased risk of receiving a fourth dose of vaccine. The kinds of issues people had with vaccination were precisely the same kinds as with a third dose or a second dose or a first dose, for that matter, of this vaccine. And it should point out that everyone received BNT162B2, the Pfizer vaccine. And so a complete consideration of how to use this vaccine requires an understanding of both benefit and risk. In this case, the absolute benefit is relatively small, but the risk is also very small. So trying to get that calculus right, I think, is challenging. So Eric, you're absolutely right. The risk is very small. And that's not surprising, and these data are quite reassuring that repetitive immunization does not reveal new or other concerning side effects. However, we do need to reflect on how vaccines work in the face of a changing pathogen. And the third and fourth doses are all with the vaccine based on the ancestral strain, which is the approved vaccine. How that immunity is protective against evolution of the virus, in part in relation to vaccine-elicited immunity as well as prior infection immunity, thus pushing viral evolution in a direction that escapes that immunity, is something we need to better understand. There is clearly protection using the same vaccine, but of course there is theoretical concern. And empiric evidence for partial escape of the Omicron variant in relation to prior established immunity. 
So at this point, we've seen two studies of a fourth dose of vaccine, although both had relatively short follow-up times. So now that the FDA has authorized a fourth dose for many people, what are you recommending to physicians and their patients? I think it's really important to stress how short the follow-up times are. We have four to six weeks of follow-up in these studies. So it makes it difficult to know how best to use these vaccines. We do know that protection against infection is certainly going to be very transient. We don't know how long protection against severe infection will last. Uh, We know it lasts at least a little bit longer, but we don't know how much longer. Given that, my thinking right now, which is likely to change, is that people who are at the highest risk of severe infection, which would include those on chemotherapy and those with transplants, probably should be getting a fourth dose relatively soon. But looking at the epidemiology of infection right now, we're in a lull. And although there may be a slight uptick in cases, we don't know where that's going. So that if we have a vaccine that has a limited lifetime, that boost is only going to give us benefit for a relatively short time. I think I might wait in more moderate risk or average risk people before committing to the vaccine at this point. Steve, I'd like to clarify two aspects of our nomenclature. First, we need to remember that in our highly immunosuppressed patients, three doses is the primary series. The fourth dose is the first boost, and the fifth dose is the second boost. And we need to remember that what we learned towards the end of last year was that additional doses were needed to bring out the best immune response in our most immunocompromised. The second point is we need to think clearly about our endpoints of interest. SARS-CoV-2 transmission, infection, disease, and severe disease. I raise that because as we look at the benefits of our interventions of vaccination, we need to be very clear what we want that benefit to be. And I think we all agree that disease and severe disease is what's most important. However, that is harder to measure as it is a less common event than infection and mild symptoms. Granted, infection and mild symptoms are a precursor to more severe illness, so they're an earlier, more common marker, thus able to be studied, but we should not confuse this with the importance of preventing severe disease. In terms of the data that we have and what to do with the second boost, be it a fourth or a fifth immunization, Eric has already alluded to some of the key points, such as time from last vaccination, how we think about the circulating variant in the community infection pressure, and what we think about the small or incremental benefit for the outcome of interest that a booster gives us and for what period of time. And this, of course, raises a very challenging question, which is when should one receive that additional booster in relation to the transmission in your community? These are all areas of active investigation. We look forward to more data to inform us. Unfortunately, we all have to make decisions today in relation to our health and the health of our patients and our families with imperfect data. But that is what we've been doing for the last two years in response to COVID and the treatments that have emerged like vaccines. I'd like to reemphasize something we've discussed before, which is 
the difference in vaccine strategies and how that's changed during the course of the epidemic. Lindsay, you basically gave up on blocking infection with vaccines. And that's appropriate because the current vaccines don't prevent transmission of virus particularly well, given the current circulating strains. That has something to do with the time since vaccination, the waning of immunity, and the mismatch between the original strain and now. Remember, of course, that at the very beginning, the vaccines were highly effective in preventing transmission. We'd love to get back there. Realistically, we're not there right now. But I don't think we want to give up on the goal of having a vaccine that can block transmission. Right now, we have a limited number of tools available. In the United States, we have a few different vaccines. But as you've said, they're all directed against the same antigen derived from the same viral strain. And we've been confined to studies that use only these agents, either alone or in combination, perhaps with different dosing schedules. The study we talked about today suggests that there are diminishing returns to using the same vaccines repeatedly. So given that, what's on the horizon? Well, certainly one of the major things is vaccines that are based on some of these novel variants. Those vaccines have a couple of properties. First off, most of them still use the same protein, the viral spike protein, but they contain the mutations present in the variant strains. Those are under investigation now. There already are some data out there which weren't particularly encouraging, but also very preliminary. But there's a large NIH study going on right now using variants of the Moderna vaccine, mRNA-1273, in various combinations to see if that will make a difference. And other studies going on outside of the NIH. Of course, the problem with variants is we're playing catch up all the time because the variants that are being tested now are those that we've already seen and are already gone. So anticipating new variants would be an important part if this strategy looks promising from the ongoing studies right now. I think that the other interesting approach is delivering vaccines in a different way. In previous podcasts, we've discussed mucosal vaccination, the idea that you could make an immune response in the nasal epithelium and the respiratory epithelium, and that might help prevent transmission or early disease. And obviously that would make a very large difference. However, there are technical issues around getting enough antigen delivered to the epithelial cells to actually generate a good immune response. But again, there are studies either ongoing or hopefully that will soon get underway testing some of these strategies. So Eric, as you point out, I've been involved in helping to develop these vaccines, and I'm currently involved in the NIH study that you referred to looking at variant sequence-based vaccines. And I think there's much to be learned in how these approaches have evolved over the last year and where we are today. You point out that making a variant vaccine to the current circulating strain, such as beta or delta or Omicron, all of which have been made, tested to different degrees and different platforms by different sponsors, is very important scientifically, but from a public health standpoint is very challenging given the speed with which the virus evolves. So a beta or delta-based vaccine may have less clinical and public health value today, given the dominance of Omicron. However, it is quite remarkable the speed with which science can alter, modify, and improve the vaccine constructs and bring them to clinical testing. Unfortunately, the speed of the virus 
makes it difficult to translate this into practice. And perhaps we don't need to. Where we are today, as you note, is there are Omicron sequence-based vaccines in the clinic. And a question will be, what value do they bring compared to repetitive use of the original strain-based vaccine? I think we are fortunate to be able to generate data to inform the discussion as to what we should do. I think this will be important as we see how the virus continues to evolve and if alterations in the vaccine delivered provide significant benefit, we may be in a position to offer that. I think it also raises important issues to our most vulnerable, such as our immunocompromised patients, where more targeted vaccines may bring out protective benefits that are not obtained with the established vaccine. And I think another population of great importance that we will need to discuss are the new members of our community, our infants, who will need to receive their primary vaccine series. The question that we will have to discuss later this year is should they receive the original vaccine strain or a vaccine strain matching the circulating virus? This raises questions of original antigenic sin or exposure as to how that primes and biases the immune response that we will need to understand scientifically to best determine what's beneficial, both to those of us who need to be boosted and for those of us who will need a primary series in the face of what is circulating in our community. One of the questions you raise, Lindsay, is how well we can anticipate what the next variant is going to be. If we had some early warning, we would be in a much better position to create a tailored vaccine against that new variant that's arising. It's not clear yet that we have the ability, though, to make those predictions. It will be interesting to see over the next several months how the existing predictions play out and whether or not there is a methodology which will allow us to anticipate new viral strains. Eric, I think there are two elements that are implied. One is, can we predict the strain of relevance for tomorrow? The other is, how quickly can we respond to the strain of relevance today? And we are doing both. It is always harder and treacherous to predict the future. But the ability to at least respond quickly to that which is circulating today I think is a remarkable set of advances over the last two years, both in the vaccine technology, the manufacturer and scalability, the monoclonal antibody therapy. I think there are several platforms that have enabled us to be responsive in a much, much shorter timeline than we historically have been able to do as a scientific community. Having said that, it's still inadequate in relation to the speed of the virus. But it does show us what is possible, and we as a community are going to continue to have to work together, as we've discussed before on these podcasts, how to do it even faster while maintaining rigor. And I think that's possible. And we've seen that over the last two years. We have to continue to do it better. With all these new approaches, what outcomes do you think would make a substantial difference? We've already talked about one. Having vaccines that once again, decreased transmission would make a huge difference. And they would change how we use vaccines, not just their efficacy, 
but vaccines would once again be very strong public health tools that could help populations. That would be great. We don't know if we can do it again, but it seems likely that it should be possible since we were able to do it once before. A second goal that I mentioned is providing protection to the most vulnerable patients. Vaccines have helped tremendously in elderly populations and in immunocompromised populations, but there are certain subpopulations that have had much less benefit and remain at relatively high risk of disease. It'd be great if we could protect them. Now, of course, we could protect them if we could protect the community through using a vaccine that inhibited transmission. It is more technically difficult for vaccines to be effective in a population that has a poor immune response. Nevertheless, this certainly should be one of our goals. Steve, I think you ask a very challenging question because we need to think about what is it we want to achieve? And though I don't disagree, Eric, with your comments, I do think we need to think a bit about the implications of transmission in low-risk populations. So I think we may have different goals in healthy young people where low-level transmission may not have significant health consequences versus our vulnerable population where the consequences may be severe. And we'll have to think about how we use our tools to prevent severe disease, understanding who's at highest risk. Part of what may inform this may be the development of biomarkers that will better inform our ability to define who's at risk. We consider boosting now largely a time-dependent function. Perhaps it should be a tighter or protective level-dependent function. The science needs to inform how we do that. But I think we're going to have to think carefully about mild illness versus severe illness. And are there different strategies to prevent the latter while understanding the difficulties of preventing the former? Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.